James chapter 1. James chapter 1. So we're here in this series in James. We've had two sermons so far. Last one was a couple of weeks ago. Working our way through this book. And this morning we're in verses 13 through 18. It'll be helpful if you've got a Bible open. If you didn't bring one, you could use one of our hardback Bibles in the pew in front of you. It's page 950 if you're using one of ours. James 1, 13 through 18. There's um, sort of a bare bones outline that's there in the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on where we're headed. Write anything down that you think could help you. James 1, 13 through 18. Um, I, I wonder if, uh, if you've noticed about yourself that you don't need anyone else to make you sinful. So have you, have you noticed that about yourself? As a Christian, hopefully you have, but this is a good reminder. As a non-Christian, I wonder if you've thought about that, if you've noticed that you don't need anybody else to make you sinful. So a, a tough situation with a coworker, it may bring your sin out into the open, right? A situation like that. A, a frustrating moment with your kids may shine a light on your sin. Satan himself may tempt you to act out in sin, but, but see, all those situations, all those people outside of you, they didn't create that sinfulness inside of you. No, no, your sinfulness, it was already inside of you. It had an opportunity to come out, but no, it was already inside of you. You, you don't need anyone else for you to be sinful. One way to think about it is, is that your sin, it's not an import, Right? So countries have imports and exports. Your sin is not an import. You don't need it from somebody else. No, your, your sinfulness is produced right at home, right inside of you. And, and that's what our passage is about this morning. Now, we've been looking at James 1. All of James 1 is, is about suffering in one way or another. So in the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw James instruct us about external trials, right? Trials outside of us, suffering that comes to us in this life. On our passage this morning, James is still talking about trials, but he's not talking about trials that come about from external suffering. He's, he's talking about the internal trials of temptation. So hear the word of the Lord, James 1, 13 through 18. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so what are we being taught in this passage? I think four things primarily. These are listed there in the outline. So first, when you're tempted, don't blame God. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, it's your own evil desires that tempt you. That's kind of the answer to what we see that's not there in the first point. Second point, it's your own evil desires that tempt you. Third, your evil desires are dangerous. You've got to treat them that way. And then finally, the solution to your evil desires is God's good gift. So, when you're being tempted to sin, don't blame God. First thing James tells us, and, and we need to hear that, because in our sinfulness, we are always trying to justify ourselves. 
So you and me, we are spring-loaded to try to excuse our sin, to try to put it off on, on somebody else or something else, to get off the hook for our sin. So, so if you raise your voice at someone in a sinful way, and then you apologize, what's normally then the first words out of your mouth after that? The three reasons why it makes sense why you screamed at them, right? Oh, I'm sorry I screamed at you. It's just that today was a long day, and this bad thing happened, and this person got frustrated with me. I don't, I don't feel good, maybe. I'm nervous about this thing coming up. So we, we know better than to say we're off the hook for our sin, but we kind of do it in a, in a backdoor way, don't we? Where we come in and we try to excuse ourselves, pointing to these external things. And it's even easy sometimes to blame God. And we know that because James tells us that here. He gives us this warning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Well, then to sort of double down, in verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then he goes on to talk about how God only gives good gifts. So it's clear James is saying, okay, in your sinful nature, you'll be tempted to blame God, at least sometimes, even, even for your sin. So, so our passage, it's, it's framed by acknowledging it's sometimes easy for sinners to blame the Lord, but he is never responsible for our sin. That's what James tells us here. When, when you're tempted, he says, don't blame God. God has nothing to do with your inner temptation to sin, with my inner temptation. So how can we know that's the case? James tells us in two parts, and he introduces it with that word for in verse 13. That's the word that's about to give us a reason. So in my Bible, if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, oftentimes I will circle a word like that, for, because it's about to give me a reason. And I want to notice that. So for, look at the middle of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so part one, God cannot be tempted with evil. So in other words, God is entirely good. Evil is not the least bit tempting for him. Look down at the end of verse 17. James says the father of lights, talking about God, has no variation or shadow. Okay, so with us as Christians, we have a measure of holiness in our lives, right? That's God's work, it's not ours but he's given us a spirit, he's working through us. There's a measure of holiness. In fact, as a Christian, there should be more holiness in your life. The holiness should be more apparent than the sin, but the sin is still there. So, so it would be kind of like if somebody's looking at your life, it's like they're looking at a sunny day, but occasionally there are clouds that go in front of the sun, right? And we sin. So there's sunshine, but there's also, there's also shadows. Well, with God, there are no clouds. It is a cloudless day all the time. His goodness, it shines uninhibited. There's only light. It's exactly what John tells us in 1 John, right? 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's not a shadow of sin in God, ever. Not in his actions, but also not in his thoughts, not in his feelings. That's an incredible thing. God has never had a sinful thought. He's never felt in a way that is sinful ever. And that's part of the reason we worship him, isn't it? So like Jesus says in Mark 10, 17, no one is good except God alone. 
And that characteristic, it's not going anywhere. So the second half of verse 17, we're told there's no variation or shadow in God due to change. So the God of the Bible doesn't change, right? He's, he's steady. Like we heard in our call to worship, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. But we can trust God will never pivot from his goodness. He'll never pivot from his goodness. He's always perfectly good. So the question for us is, why would we ever give our hope to any other person in the universe? Everybody else has, has sin in them, right? Has darkness in them. Why would we put our hope in our children or in a spouse or in a politician? Everyone besides God has sin. They have shadows, but God will never let you down. He never does or thinks or feels anything that's not perfect. And, and that's because God hates wrongdoing. It's a theme we see clearly in Scripture. He hates sin. In fact, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, it says figuratively, he hates it so much he cannot even look at wrongdoing. So he's perfectly good all the time. Again, the way James says in verse 13, God has no inner temptation to sin, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Okay, so here's part two. So remember, we're looking at the question, why do we know that God won't tempt us to sin? Okay, part one of the answer, he never sins. He's perfectly good. Here's part two. Because God can't be tempted with evil, because he hates it, he won't tempt anybody else to do it either. Because he hates it. Verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So follow the logic. God hates sin. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And so that means he's not going to tempt anyone else to sin. When I was little, my parents made me and my sister eat beets. I don't know if you've ever eaten a beet. Beets are horrible. Horrible. I, I, know, I think I know for a fact nobody here is a beet farmer. They're, they're trouble. Now, my parents made us eat beets because they were okay with beets. I don't understand that, right? I love my parents. That's a mystery to me. They were okay with beets. They ate beets, so they made us eat those beets. You know who's never had a beet? is my children. <laughs> Maria and I aren't going to give beets to our children because we hate beets. We're not going to bring those into our home. So you understand, that's silly, but, but you understand how it fits here. God hates sin. He's never going to tempt you to sin, ever. He hates it. Now, God does test us, right? We saw this a few weeks ago. Verses 2 through 4 and verse 12 in James 1. God brings external trials into your life as a Christian to test you, to strengthen your faith. He, he externally tests, but he never internally tempts. He doesn't do that. In fact, the main thing God wants for you in your Christian life is for you not to sin. He's never going to tempt you to do it. And just as a side note, if when you're praying for your fellow members in the church directory, you don't know what to pray for, pray for that. Lord, keep this person from sin today. What a good prayer. And just a reminder, the most important things you can pray for somebody else are the things you can pray for them, even if you don't know what's going on in their life that week, right? even if you don't know their health situation. Those are all great things to pray for, but the most important things that we can pray for one another are the things that we can always pray for a fellow Christian. 
Lord, keep this person from sin. God doesn't want you to sin. He hates it. And so he's never going to tempt you to do it. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when you're tempted, don't blame God. Okay, so point two, if God isn't the one putting those temptations inside of you, and he's not, then where do they come from? Well, second main point we see in our passage, it's your own evil desires that tempt you. It's my own evil desires that tempt me. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God's not the one persuading you to sin. There is one, but it's your own desire. That's what's tempting you. Now let's look at that word desire so we can get a handle on it, what James intends to, uh, to convey with this word. So remember, the New Testament, it was written in Greek. So this word desire, it's an English translation of a Greek word, epithumia, is the word desire. Now that word on its own, that can mean a good desire or a bad desire. Just like in English, when we hear desire, well, there's good desires and there's bad desires. The Bible talks about both. So as far as a good desire, this is Jesus in Luke 22, verse 15. He only had good desires. Luke 22, 15, Jesus says, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Okay, same word. So Jesus, that's a good desire. Or with a Christian, Philippians 1.23, this is Paul talking. He says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. Hopefully we have that desire too. That's a good desire. Okay. The vast majority of the times though that that word desire is used in scripture, it's talking about a bad desire. The vast, vast majority. Let's hear from a few of those. Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Same word that's translated there as lusts. Same word in our passage for desire. God gave them up to the lusts of their heart for impurity. That's a bad desire. Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Same thing, our word for desires. That's a bad desire. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, a bad desire. Or 2 Peter 1.4, you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Same word we have here. We see the word again in James. In chapter 4, verse 2, it's talking about a bad desire. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Okay, so passions, lusts, sinful desires, those are all good translations for this word in most contexts in, in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, it's the same word used in the New Testament to talk about the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Covet there is literally just this word desire. You shall not desire. And of course, he's talking about sinful, evil desires. So, so as a Christian, even though you, you have good desires because of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you still have these bad desires as well, these sinful desires. And the desires James talks about in verse 14 are evil desires. And we know that because there's a dichotomy being drawn here between God who's good and these desires that are bad. So God doesn't tempt you to sin. He's good. 
these desires do tempt you to sin because they're bad. Like the verbs in verse 14 are saying, these desires are luring and enticing you to sin. So they're not good. They aren't even neutral. These desires are bad. You, you may have come across news sources at some point, maybe a radio program or a TV station or a particular periodical that, that would say we're impartial. But when you evaluate that news source, you think you are not impartial. You're coming at this slanted. Okay, that's what these desires are. They're not neutral. They're slanted. They're evil desires. Verse 14 again, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, so, so where do these desires come from? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 6, verse 45, which was part of our congregational reading, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, so as sinful humans, we have sinful desires because of our sinful hearts. That's where those desires come from. Now, God didn't create us that way. He didn't create us with evil hearts. Now, Genesis 1 makes it clear everything God created is good. He created it good. The human heart becomes sinful in Genesis 3. We were reminded about that in our Old Testament reading. Genesis 3, 6 records the first sinful desire, at least it's on record, in human history. And they were told the tree of good and evil was desired to make one wise. So Eve, she's tempted externally by Satan, but that temptation, it found a landing pad in her heart because she already had that sinful desire, that desire to be wise apart from God. And once Adam and Eve pursued that evil desire, the work had been done. Sin had come into mankind's heart, and it's still there today. It's in all of our hearts. Listen to the way Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 says it. God made man upright. Everything he creates is good. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So Adam and Eve brought sin into this world. As a result, we all inherited sinful hearts. So God doesn't tempt you to sin. Your own desires tempt you to sin. So let's think about just a couple specific examples. So, so for the kids here, when you've done something wrong, something your parents told you not to do, maybe your teacher told you not to do, you do something wrong, and then you realize that you have probably been caught, and you feel that desire to lie and to say, I did not do this thing. That desire is created by your heart. Your heart's the one that makes that thing. Well, for us as, as adults, when you feel that impulse at your job to do the bare minimum on a task, because it'll be easier, so you're tempted to, to cut corners in that way instead of putting in your full effort, that temptation to be lazy, that's produced by your own sinful heart. Or when you want to get credit for something, you want to share something good you've done so the people around you will be impressed and think that you're good that desire, again, created by your own heart. Those desires aren't imports. You, you made that product right at home, right inside your heart. And here's one reason this is so important to understand. It reminds us that our hearts are even more sinful than we oftentimes think. 
If, if all our sinful actions only came from external temptations, that'd be one thing, right? But no, it's our own heart that tempts us to sin. So it's, it's kind of like if, if, if you're a parent and you have a kid that gets into trouble and you're confident, oh, I bet my kid was just tempted by this other crowd of kids he's running around with. I bet my kid was the good one, but he kind of got, got pulled into this by the crowd. Okay, that would be us if it's only external temptation. But then you find out, actually, no, my kid was the ringleader. My kid was the one that came up with the plan. That's your heart. Your heart doesn't get roped into these things. Your heart's the one that came up with the plan, right? That's what he's teaching us here. It's sinful desires from inside of us. Verse 14 again, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You're worse than you thought, aren't you? I'm worse than I oftentimes think. But see, what that sets us up to see is there's also one who is even better than maybe we thought initially this morning. Because there has only been one human whose heart never produced a sinful desire, and that's Jesus Christ. All of Jesus' desires matched up perfectly with God's word. He's different than us, isn't he? That's a radical difference. Listen to the way that one Christian author, a Scottish guy named Donald MacLeod, listen to the way he says it. He says, but in one crucial respect, Christ was not like us. He was not tempted by anything within himself. He was not dragged away by his own evil desire and enticed. There was no law of sin in his members. There was no predisposition to sin, no love of sin, and no affinity with sin. The prince of this world had no foothold on him. So on your own, you're, you're so bad, aren't you? I'm so bad, but Jesus is so good. His desires have always been and will always be good. But yours and mine are oftentimes bad, and it's your own evil desires that tempt you. And this is a big deal because of what, what we see next in our passage. It's our third point. Your evil desires are dangerous. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, so the Lord gives us a, a progression here. So sinful desire in your heart, they're always trying to get you to obey them. So the desire to be selfish with your time, that's, that's tempting. It's tempting you to, to maybe speak harshly to your children when they inconvenience you. Your desire to be lazy is tempting you to, to cut corners at work. The desire to be seen as great in other people's eyes is tempting you to brag about yourself when you're in front of others. So, so let's say that, that you pursue those sins to completion. So you speak harshly, or you cut corners, or you brag about yourself. Well, at that point, your sinful desire has conceived, in the words of verse 15. So you, you can think about it like your, your sinful heart and your sinful hands have come together at that point. They've conceived. And then that sin that was already in your heart comes out into your life in real time. You've given yourself to it fully at that point. But see, sin is never satisfied to just be conceived and stay at that size. Sin is never satisfied with that. It's never satisfied to just be conceived and stay an infant. 
By its very nature, sin grows. So in Maine, the, the property we had, we, we had a baby tree that sprung up out of the ground, and it started to grow. It looked really harmless. And one day I remember thinking, oh, you know what? This tree is going to keep getting bigger. And I looked up to see where it would be eventually, and there's power lines. And I think, oh, you know what? We need to get rid of this tree. It's small now, but it's going to keep growing, and one day it's going to be up in those power lines. Sin doesn't stay the same size. Sin grows. That's why one illustration the Bible uses to talk about sin is yeast. Yeast spreads. It gets bigger. Listen to the way the Puritan pastor, John Owen, says it. So good. He says, your sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it might have its own course. If it could have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? Isn't that something? Your sin wants to grow. It's not satisfied to stay small. And if it's not attacked, it will grow. Your impatience wants to grow. Your greed wants to grow. Your lust wants to grow. Your hatred wants to grow. In the words of verse 15, your sin wants to be fully grown. And look again at what that leads to, verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That sin's natural path, if it gets its way, it leads to death. And here, he, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Death away from the presence of God. He's talking about eternal death. The way Paul says it in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's why John Owen, that same Puritan pastor, he says, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. There's only two options. Either you're putting sin to death or your sin is mastering you and getting bigger. Be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Your desires are dangerous. But they're not just dangerous because of the outcome. That's pretty bad. But the most dangerous things in this life are things that have a deadly outcome but are also appealing, right? That's why if you have particular clean, so those, uh, those tied pods, Remember, there it was that time where children had ingested some of those because they look like candy. That's a dangerous combination, isn't it? This thing is dangerous if you eat it, and it looks appealing, at least to children. That's the most dangerous kind of coupling. Well, your desires won't just lead to a bad outcome. They're also really appealing. Your desires are appealing. That's because they were created in your heart for you. So by definition, they're going to be appealing. It's like there's a mini advertising agency that's in your heart and you are their only customer, right? Advertising agencies are good at their job. That's what it's like in your heart. Your heart is regularly coming up with ad campaigns targeted just at you to try to get you to sin. They're tailor-made for you, your desires are. Look at the way James characterizes the way your desires will appeal to you, verse 14. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Those words, lured and enticed, they were used to talk about fishing in the first century. That's what a fisherman would do. So to be enticed is what the fisherman was trying to do with the bait, getting the fish to bite. And then luring is what he would do when he would pull the fish in. It means dragged away. The way one New Testament scholar describes the process of our passage is you're snared by your own bait. Isn't that something? Your heart rigs up the line and then you grab onto it and you're snared by your own bait. The way the Lord describes it to Cain, when he's being tempted to kill Abel, God describes it in Genesis 4, 7. He says, sin is crouching at the door. So you're enticed by the physical pleasure this sin will bring you, or the emotional pleasure, or the pleasure to your reputation. It's, it's enticing. And when you've got something that's really dangerous, plus really enticing, that's a recipe for disaster. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. So your evil desires are dangerous. So, what are we supposed to do? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but since becoming a Christian, you and I still struggle with these evil desires. Those desires are, are dangerous in their outcome, they're attractive. So what can we do? Well, praise God, he's offered us a solution. He's offered us a solution to the problem of our evil desires. Verse 16, to the end of our passage, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As our final point this morning, the sinful, or I'm sorry, the solution to your evil desires is God's good gift. The solution to your evil desires is God's good gift. So like we looked at before, our God's good, he only gives good gifts. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So the gifts your sinful flesh gives you, bad gifts, evil desires. The gifts God gives you, good gifts. In fact, anytime you receive a good gift in life, verse 16 tells you, know it's from God. And that's true even if you're here and you're not a Christian. Every good gift in your life is from God. So, did you enjoy some of the nice weather this past week? Maybe yesterday, that was a gift from the Lord. Do you have a job? It's a gift from God. Do you have a spouse? A gift from God. Every good thing we have is from God. He's, he's so good, he's just overflowing with good gifts all the time. When my mom is with us, she is regularly giving me money. It's been that way ever since I went to college, right? She's, she's just overflowing with good gifts. That's what she does. Well, she's picturing our perfect heavenly father. He's overflowing with good gifts all the time. And what's the best gift he's given to any of us? It's not the weather. It's not your children. It's not your health. No, it's salvation. It's your recreation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So after James says God only gives good gifts, look at where he instantly goes to prove the point. He instantly goes to the best gift. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this is the best gift that's ever come to anybody. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, our recreation in him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is the gift that's being held out to you this morning. It's all we have to offer you on behalf of the Lord, but it's the best gift you could ever have. All of your sins can be covered by the blood of Christ. And that doesn't come about by you working hard and cleaning yourself up and trying to be a good person. No, it comes through trust alone in Christ alone. Faith apart from works. That's the Christian gospel. If that sounds different to you, it's because it is. That goes contrary to everything your heart wants to believe, which is that you have to fix your relationship with the Lord. Goes contrary to every religion that's ever been created by man, which is every religion except for the one that's outlined in the Bible sitting in your lap. The gospel is different from all those things. You come to Jesus and it's all about his work on our behalf. So come and talk to me if you're willing to think about that more, of trusting in Christ. Well, let's look at what James tells us about this gift in verse 18. First of all, how is the gift of salvation described? Well, it's described as a bringing forth. He says, of, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. It's the same word used for giving birth to somebody. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the new birth, recreation, regeneration. It's what Jesus talks about to Nicodemus. Do you remember this? John 3, verse 3. He says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 5. Different illustration. He says, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So we understand from the word, before we were Christians, we were spiritually dead. We were, we were like a child that wasn't conceived yet. We were like a body that was a corpse. And so to be saved, God had to recreate us spiritually. He had to give us new birth. The way that the 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle talks about it, God had to give you a new heart and a new nature. So the gift James is talking about is, is the new birth that you've been given through the gospel. He brought us forth. Okay, now who was responsible for you getting that new birth? The beginning of verse 18 tells us, of his own will, he brought us forth. It's talking about God's will. So just like, believe this thing I'm about to tell you, it's a Bible thing. The Bible's always right about everything. Just like you had nothing to do with your own literal conception and birth, you didn't. Just like you had nothing to do with that, you had nothing to do with your spiritual rebirth. Absolutely nothing. Same thing for the person who their heart stops for a while and they have to be resuscitated. That person had nothing to do with their heart starting to beat again. That was you spiritually. You had nothing to do, zero, with your spiritual rebirth. That was a work of God alone, simply because of his grace to you. This is why we pray for the salvation of non-Christians, isn't it? We know God is the only one that can give spiritual birth, so we ask him to do it. Like Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So that's who does it. James tells us the means. What's the instrument that God uses to bring our new birth? Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you're a Christian, God created spiritual life in you through his word. That's the means with which he did it. So you 
heard the gospel, and you believed in Christ. You were saved not by way of your eyes, but through your ears, through the word of Christ. God's always done that. He creates life with his word. Genesis 1, how do you create the universe? His word. Ezekiel 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. How are those bones put together with flesh on them? Through Ezekiel preaching to them, the proclamation of God's word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Or 1 Peter 1, 23, sounds a lot like our passage. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's why we fill these services up with Bible. That's why we do that as elders. When we put these services together, it's because we know it's God's word that produces spiritual life. Nothing else that we have that's guaranteed to produce spiritual life but the word. So we want to have a lot of word here on Sunday mornings. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Okay, why does God do all of that? What's the point? What's the end game of him giving us new birth through the word of the gospel? He tells us in verse 18 with that word, that. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that, or because, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, he gave you the new birth through the gospel of Jesus, so you could be part of the first fruits of his creatures. What's that mean? We don't use that terminology much. First fruits, well, Israel was an agrarian society, right? They were, they were farmers. First fruits was the first part of the harvest that they gave to the Lord. It was devoted fully to God. So the corn would come in, they would gather, probably not corn, let's call it wheat. Wheat comes in, they gather the first part of the wheat, it's offered completely to the Lord. As a Christian, that's exactly what God has done to you. You've been set aside for the Lord in Christ. You are the first fruits. You were saved for the purpose of being with your triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to worship him and enjoy him for all eternity. You're part of God's first fruits. And here's the upshot of all of that for our passage. Because God has set you aside for himself, he's got to continue to grow you more and more into what he desires you to be. And, and part of that process is day by day, he's transforming your evil desires more and more into good desires. So that desire for recognition from other people, he's transforming that desire into a desire to only please the Lord, to fear God and not fear others. That desire for, for making sure you have a comfortable situation for always looking out for yourself, transforming that into a desire to do good to others, to try to care for them. And the way God's transforming your desires, it's the same way he gave you the new birth at the beginning of your Christian life. He does it through his word. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So as we close, the application here is simple. Press into that word of truth. Your evil desires are dangerous, so have them transformed through the Bible. He, he recreated you with his word, and he's growing you with that word. So read scripture and believe what it says. Read scripture and believe what it says. Like we see in the middle of verse 21, a few verses down. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 
So do you want to see your old evil desires transformed? Read scripture and believe what it says. Now, for most of us, that means we're going to need to set aside a particular time every day for Bible reading, right? Some of us don't work that way. For, for most of us, if we want to stay on top of a habit like that, we need to make it habitual. We need to set apart the same time every day, carve that time out. That's one thing that's helpful about Bible studies with other believers. So if, if you're a lady, consider joining with that Proverbs Bible study because there's that built-in accountability. Because every week, there's this word from Proverbs that you're responsible for having looked at. It even breaks it down in the book day by day. Stuff like that can be really, really helpful. But just so we're all reminded, you can also read the Bible outside of that time. So you might be really, really good at reading the Bible the same time every day, and you found that helpful. Praise God for it. But you can also read the Bible outside of that time. Isn't that good to be reminded of? So if you're waiting for that ball game to start on TV, you can pick up the Bible and you can read a psalm, right? While you're waiting. If, if you're waiting to pick up your kids from school, you can read a chapter from one of the Gospels. If you're waiting in the, the waiting room at a doctor's appointment or grilling food outside or, or waiting on your spouse to get ready, read one of those short New Testament epistles. Depending on how long it takes your wife to get ready, you can read one of those long New Testament epistles. Read the Bible often and believe what it says. So put the seed of God's word in your heart so it can transform you more and more into the kind of first fruits that are fit for Jesus. Your, your evil desires are strong, but praise God, the word of Jesus is much stronger. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by his word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you point this truth out to us, that our desires are evil. Father, we know that apart from your word, very likely, we would all think we're pretty good people. We would compare ourselves to others who we think are worse than us, and we would walk away with pride, feeling like we're pretty good, certainly we're good enough to merit eternal life. Condemnation in your eyes is, is only for the worst of the worst, we would probably think, and, and we do pretty good. Father, we're so thankful that your word has shown that to be entirely untrue. Father, every part of our, sin, of our lives is touched by sin. And those aren't sins that are brought into us from outside. Those come from our own sinful, evil desires. Father, we're so thankful you've given us the gospel. We have no remedy apart from it. So thankful that Jesus' blood covers all of our sins, even sins that nobody else ever sees, that don't come to fruition. Jesus' blood covers those sins. Father, as believers, we pray that your spirit would unite with your word the way you promise it will and would produce more and more good desires in place of those evil desires. Not for, not for us to boast in ourselves, but to boast in you and your good work for us in the gospel of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.